A few months ago, I received a letter from a church member who posed an unusual question. Do I have a right to bear testimony of the Savior, or is that the sole prerogative of the Twelve? In response, I will share some thoughts on why every member of this Church should bear witness and testimony of Jesus Christ. In the beginning, God commanded Adam, Thou shalt do all that thou doest in the name of the Son, and thou shalt repent and call upon God in the name of the Son forevermore. Then the Holy Ghost, which beareth record of the Father and the Son, came upon Adam and Eve, and they blessed the name of God, and they made all thing, these things known unto their sons and their daughters. Later, Enoch described how God had taught Adam that all must repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, whose atoning sacrifice made possible the forgiveness of sins, and that they must teach these things to their children. And so our first parents established the pattern, receiving a testimony from the Holy Ghost and then bearing witness of the Father and the Son to those around them. The prophet Nephi described the ordinance of baptism as an occasion when persons would witness unto the Father that they were willing to take upon them the name of Christ. Similarly, the Lord has specified that those who desire to be baptized in this dispensation should come forth with broken hearts and contrite spirits and witness before the Church that they are willing to take upon them the name of Jesus Christ. We renew that promise when we partake of the sacrament. We also witness of Christ by our membership in the Church that bears His name. We are commanded to pray unto the Father in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to do all things in the name of Christ. If we follow these commandments, we serve as witnesses of Jesus Christ through our baptism, our membership in His Church, our partaking of the sacrament, and our prayers and other actions in His name. But our duty to be witnesses of Jesus Christ requires more than this, and I fear that some of us fall short. Latter-day Saints can become so preoccupied with our own agendas that we can forget to witness and testify of Christ. I quote from a recent letter I received from a member in the United States. He described what he heard in his fast and testimony meeting. Quote, I sat and listened to 17 testimonies and never heard Jesus mentioned or referred to in any way. I thought I might be in some other denomination, but I supposed not because there were no references to God either. The following Sunday I again attended church. I sat through a priesthood lesson a gospel doctrine lesson, and seven sacrament meeting speakers, and never once heard the name of Jesus or any reference to him." End of quote. Perhaps that description is exaggerated. Surely it is exceptional. I quote it because it provides a vivid reminder for all of us. In answer to the question, What are the fundamental principles of your religion? The Prophet Joseph Smith said, the fundamental principles of our religion are the testimony of the apostles and prophets concerning Jesus Christ, that he died, was buried, and rose again the third day, 
and ascended into heaven, and all other things which pertain to our religion are only appendages to it." End of quote. When Alma spoke to a group of prospective members at the Waters of Mormon, he instructed them on the duties of those who were desirous to come into the fold of God and to be called his people. One of those duties was to stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things and in all places that ye may be in, even until death. How do members become witnesses? The original apostles were eyewitnesses to the ministry and resurrection of the Savior. He told them, Ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. However, he cautioned them that their witnessing would be after they had received the Holy Ghost. An eyewitness was not enough. Even the witness and testimony of the original apostles had to be rooted in the testimony of the Holy Ghost. A prophet has told us that the witness of the Holy Ghost makes an impression on our soul that is more significant than a visitation of an angel. And the Bible shows that when we testify on the basis of this witness, the Holy Ghost testifies to those who hear our words. When Peter and the other apostles were brought before the civil authorities, he testified that Jesus Christ was a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Then Peter added, And we are his witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. The mission of the Holy Ghost is to witness of the Father and the Son. Consequently, everyone who has received the witness of the Holy Ghost has a duty to share that testimony with others. Apostles have the calling and ordination to be special witnesses of the name of Christ in all the world. But the duty to witness and testify of Christ at all times and in all places applies to every member of the Church who has received the testimony of the Holy Ghost. The book of Luke records two examples of this. In obedience to the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary brought the infant Jesus to the temple at Jerusalem after forty days to present him to the Lord. There, two aged and spiritual temple workers received a witness of his identity and testified of him. Simeon, who had known by revelation from the Holy Ghost that he should not taste of death until he had seen the Messiah, took the infant in his arms and testified to his divine mission. Anna, whom the scripture called a prophetess, recognized the Messiah and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Anna and Simeon were eyewitnesses to the infant, but just like the apostles, their knowledge of his divine mission came through the witness of the Holy Ghost. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Therefore, we can properly say that when each received this witness, Simeon was a prophet and Anna was a prophetess. Each then fulfilled the prophetic duty to testify to those around them. As Peter said, to Christ give all the prophets witness. 
This is what Moses meant when he expressed the wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. The scriptures describe other occasions when ordinary members, men and women, bore witness of Christ. The Book of Mormon tells of King Lamoni and his queen who testified of their Redeemer. The Bible describes the witness of the Holy Ghost coming upon the kinsmen and friends of Cornelius, who were then heard to magnify God. Our scriptural duty to witness of the Savior and to testify of His divine Sonship has been affirmed by the prophets in our own day. We are told that the commandments are given and the gospel is proclaimed that every person might speak in the name of God the Lord, even the Savior of the world. Spiritual gifts come by the power of the Holy Ghost that all the faithful may be benefited. One of these gifts is to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that He was crucified for the sins of the world. Those who receive that gift have the duty to testify of it. We know this because immediately after describing the gift of knowing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Lord says, To others it is given to believe on their words, that they also might have eternal life if they continue faithful. Those who have the gift to know must give their witness so that those who have the gift to believe on their words can enjoy the benefit of that gift. Speaking to some of the earliest missionaries of this dispensation, the Lord said, But with some I am not well pleased, for they will not open their mouths, but they hide the talent which I have given unto them because of the fear of man. Woe unto such, for mine anger is kindled against them. In contrast, the Lord gave this great promise to those who were valiant in bearing testimony. I will forgive you of your sins with this commandment, that you remain steadfast in bearing testimony to all the world of those things which are communicated to you. This caution and promise were directed specifically to missionaries, but other scriptures suggest that they apply to other members as well. In his vision of the spirits of the dead, President Joseph F. Smith described the spirits of the just as those who had been faithful in the testimony of Jesus while they lived in mortality. In contrast, in his vision of the three degrees of glory, the prophet Joseph Smith described those souls who go to the terrestrial kingdom as the honorable men of the earth who were not valiant in the testimony of Jesus. What does it mean to be valiant in the testimony of Jesus? Surely this includes keeping His commandments and serving Him. But wouldn't it also include bearing witness of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer, to believers and non-believers alike? As the Apostle Peter taught the saints of his day, we should sanctify the Lord God in our hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh a reason of the hope that is in us. All of us need to be valiant in the testimony of Jesus. As believers in Christ, we affirm the truth of Peter's testimony in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. 
We know from modern revelation that we can come unto the Father only in His name. And as the Book of Mormon teaches, salvation is in and through the atoning blood of Christ, the Lord Omnipotent. To those who are devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ, I say there has never been a greater need for us to profess our faith privately and publicly. When the gospel was first restored, the pulpits of this land were aflame with the testimony of Jesus, the divine Son of God and Savior of the world. True, the fullness of his doctrine and the power of his priesthood had been lost from the earth, but there were many good and honorable men and women who were valiant in their own testimony of Jesus. Our earliest missionaries concentrated their message on the Restoration the calling of the prophet Joseph Smith, and the restoring of priesthood authority. Since they could assume that most of those they taught had a fundamental belief in Jesus Christ as our Savior. Today our missionaries cannot make that assumption. There are still many God-fearing people who testify to the divinity of Jesus Christ. But there are many more, even in the formal ranks of Christianity, who doubt his existence or deny his divinity. As I see the deterioration in religious faith that has happened in my own lifetime, I am convinced that we who are members of his Church need to be increasingly valiant in our testimony of Jesus. Speaking almost twenty years ago, President Harold B. Lee said, quote, Fifty years ago or more, when I was a missionary, our greatest responsibility was to defend the great truth that the Prophet Joseph Smith was divinely called and inspired, and that the Book of Mormon was indeed the Word of God. But even at that time there were the unmistakable evidences that there was coming into the religious world actually a question about the Bible and about the divine calling of the Master himself. Now, fifty years later, our greatest responsibility and anxiety is to defend the divine mission of our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, for all about us, even among those who claim to be professors of the Christian faith, are those not willing to stand squarely in defense of the great truth that our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, was indeed the Son of God." End of quote. Our knowledge of the literal divinity, resurrection, and atonement of Jesus Christ is more certain and more distinctive with each passing year. That is one reason the Lord inspired His prophet Ezra Taft Benson to have us reemphasize our study and testimony of the Book of Mormon, whose mission is the convincing of the Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God. We live in a time when too many who purport to be Christians have a cause that comes ahead of Christ. For example, a national magazine recently reported an innovation by a new bishop of a prominent Christian church. Their ministers have always consecrated the emblems of the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. However, in an effort to use what are called non-sexist words, this new bishop has begun to consecrate the Eucharist in the name of the Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer. 
Such trendy and expedient tampering with the Christian faith is illustrative of the extent to which some are unwilling to witness of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Such deliberate deviations are not likely to be made by faithful Latter-day Saints. However, we need to be on guard against careless omissions and oversights in our personal testimonies, in our formal instruction, and in our worship and funeral services. In addition, each of us has many opportunities to proclaim our belief to friends and neighbors, fellow workers, and casual acquaintances. I hope we will take these opportunities to express our love for our Savior, our witness of His divine mission, and our determination to serve Him. If we do all of this, we can say, like the Apostle Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to every one that believeth. And we can say, like the prophet Nephi, we talk of Christ, we rejoice in Christ, we preach of Christ, we prophesy of Christ, that our children may know to what source they may look for a remission of their sins. I testify of Jesus Christ, the Lord God of Israel, the light and life of the world, as I affirm the truth of his gospel. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Brethren, it's an honor to be with you. I humbly pray for the Spirit to guide the things that I say, that we may look at a few brief events in the life of our prophet and resolve to try harder to do like him, to be true disciples of Jesus Christ. President Kimball quoted Mr. F. M. Bearham as saying, When a wrong wants writing, or a truth wants preaching, or a continent wants discovering, and we might add, or God wants us to read the Book of Mormon, God sends a baby into the world to do it. And so it was that on August the 4th, 1899, in Whitney, Idaho, Sarah Benson started into labor. Her husband, George, gave her a blessing. Dr. Cutler attended her in the bedroom of their farm home, with both grandmothers, Louisa Benson and Margaret Dunkley, there. The delivery was prolonged and difficult. As the baby, a large boy, was delivered, the doctor couldn't get him to breathe and laid him on the bed, pronouncing, There's no hope for the child, but I believe we can save the mother. While Dr. Cutler feverishly attended Sarah, the grandmothers rushed to the kitchen, praying silently as they worked, and returned shortly with two pans of water one cold and the other warm. Alternately, they dipped the baby in cold and then in warm water until finally they heard a cry. The 11-pound, 12-ounce boy was alive. Later, both grandmothers bore testimony that the Lord had spared the child. George and Sarah named him Ezra Taft Benson. At age 12, his father was called on a mission. And being the oldest child, Ezra was left to help care for his mother, who was expecting, and his six brothers and sisters. 
A smallpox epidemic caused them all to be seriously ill, and the mother became critically ill, but they refused the insistence of the doctor that the father come home. And the Lord blessed them, and they weathered this and many other difficult situations while the father served a mission. In the early fall of 1920, Ezra spent a weekend in Logan preparatory to enrolling for winter quarter. He and a cousin were standing on the curb on Main Street when an attractive young woman drove by in a Ford convertible and waved to a friend. A few minutes later, she drove by a second time and waved again. Who is that? Ezra asked. Flora Amason, his cousin replied. There was something about that girl that impressed Ezra, and he responded enthusiastically, When I come down here this winter, I'm going to court her. Like heck you will, the cousin answered. She's too popular for a farm boy like you. That makes it all the more interesting, Ezra countered. He received the distinct impression that he would marry her. In the summer of 1921, at age 21, a letter came from President Heber J. Grant calling Ezra on a mission to Great Britain. July 13, 1921, he went through the Logan Temple with his parents, and three days later he said goodbye to his parents and girlfriend and started on his way to England. Elder Benson studied and worked hard, but didn't feel like he was doing too well, and wrote in his journal that he was disgusted with his frail attempts to speak. But as he matured spiritually, he was invited to speak at the South Shields branch. He was assigned to speak on the apostasy, but instead he gave a strong and impressive discourse of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. He later said, and I quote, I spoke with a freedom I had never experienced. Afterwards, I couldn't recall what I had said, but several non-members surrounded me and said, Tonight we received a witness that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God and we are ready for baptism. It was the experience of a lifetime. It was the first experience of that kind I'd had where I knew that the Lord was with me." President Benson married his sweetheart September 10, 1926, in the Salt Lake Temple, after they had both served missions. He has said that Sister Benson had more faith in him than he had in himself. After 64 years of marriage, they are an example of love and devotion to us all. Now each of you young men can know that the Lord is with you and that He loves each one of you. You can follow this great prophet and serve a mission and be married in the temple. You can live a life of service as he has and be a disciple of Jesus. When President Kimball died, we were living in Arizona. President Kimball had been in our home. We had knelt with him in family prayer and had eaten my wife's bread and milk. We knew that he was a prophet of God. I wanted a witness of the Spirit that President Benson was God's chosen prophet. I wanted to know more than that he was just a good person and next in line after President Kimball. The Lord was kind to me, and after fasting and prayer, 
I received by the Spirit the witness that President Benson was indeed God's chosen prophet for this time, with a special calling and a special message for our day. Today there are thousands who have had a spiritual awakening because they are studying and following the teachings of the Book of Mormon, as the Prophet has admonished us to do. There are thousands who feel they have received a special personal message from the Prophet as he has spoken to the young men of the Church, the young women of the Church, the children, the elderly, the parents. There are thousands who are better people today because they have stripped themselves of pride as counseled by this great prophet. Yes, we thank thee, O God, for a prophet to guide us in these latter days. I bear witness that Ezra Taft Benson was born to be a prophet, has lived so he could be a prophet, and has been called of God to be a prophet in our day. He has set a pattern of service and endurance that each of us should seek to follow. In closing, may I read the words of a song that were sung this afternoon by the Young Ladies Chorus that express our feelings for our prophet. We ever pray for thee, our prophet dear, that God will give to thee comfort and cheer. As the advancing years furrow thy brow, still may the light within shine bright as now. We ever pray for thee with all our hearts that strength be given thee to do thy part, to guide and counsel us from day to day, to shed a holy light around our way. We ever pray for thee with fervent love, and as the children's prayer is heard above, thou shalt be ever blessed, and God will give all that is meet and best while thou shalt live. May God bless and sustain his prophet, and may we follow him, is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. A few days ago, I enjoyed the challenging experience of speaking to a large group of younger teenagers. Thereafter, I received a special letter from a wonderful mother who, with her husband, a bishop, had accompanied their 14-year-old son with some of his friends to the meeting. These are the last few words of her letter. Please accept my thanks. You spoke seriously to a group of youth who are used to being told how wonderful they are. They are wonderful, but they needed to do some heavy thinking for a change. You helped them do that. Thank you. I was pleased that the meeting had encouraged some serious thinking and consideration, at least some of those present. We referred as we began that evening to the aimless habit some of us have of channel hopping or dial switching as we sit in front of a television set or radio and suggested that in preparation I had done a similar kind of searching through my memory and notes. I was seeking to select out of many observations and experiences and thoughts a few that might make a difference to those who were seriously listening and might thereafter think about what they had heard. I'd like to do the same with you in these few moments this evening. A picture forms on my monitor involving a father aboard an airplane on a short business trip. 
He had with him his five-year-old son. He's almost wishing he were not there because it's a very rough trip. There are downdrafts and updrafts and headwinds alternating with tailwinds, and some passengers are feeling a bit queasy. Apprehensively, the father glances at his son and finds him grinning from ear to ear. Daddy says, do they do this just to make it fun for the kids? <laughs> Good parents and family and leaders and friends do go to great lengths to make it fun for the kids. But the fun they're thinking of is wholesome fun. It hurts no one, and it lifts the spirit and is good to remember, tomorrow and through a lifetime and forever. It never detracts from the real long-term joy we came in this world to experience. The next scene on the screen illustrates that clearly. It's a personal testimony of a noble and loving father to his children shortly before his death. Says Lehi, I have spoken these few words unto you in the last days of my probation, and I have chosen the good part according to the words of the prophet, and I have none other object save it be the everlasting welfare of your souls. That's the object also of every good father and mother and grandparent and teacher and priesthood leader and friend. As we switch rapidly to another scene or two tonight, look for the principles of love and agency shining through the thoughts and illustrations. They are central principles of the gospel, encompassing all the law and the prophets, as Jesus said of the commandments to love God and love our neighbor. And they emphasize the individual responsibility and accountability in our choices with respect to all other virtues and values. The Bible teaches us that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And the Doctrine and Covenants teaches that Jesus Christ, your Redeemer, so loved the world that He gave His own life. God so loved that He gave. Christ so loved that He gave. We are here on this earth to learn, after the example of the Father and the Son, to love enough to give to use our agency unselfishly. We're here to learn to do the will of the Father. The love we speak of is not just a word or a feeling or a sentiment. John wrote, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So we are speaking of choosing a course of sharing, of giving, of graciousness, of kindness, not as optional elements in the gospel, but the heart of it. Decency and honor and unselfishness, good manners and good taste are expected of us. What really matters, after all, is what kind of people we are, and that we are daily, hourly deciding and manifesting. Jesus said, Behold, I am the light which you shall hold up, that which you have seen me do. A sobering and poignant scene appears on our screen as we switch channels. A grieving young father and his two children sit before a television set in their home after a makeshift dinner. The children have been staying with grandmother while their mother has slowly slipped away in a lingering illness. Now they and their father are home again after her funeral. The little girl drops off to sleep and is carried to her bed. The little boy fights off sleepiness till he finally asks his father if tonight, just tonight, he can sleep with him in his bed. As the two lie silently in the dark, the lad speaks. Daddy, are you looking at me? Yes, son, the father replies, I'm looking at you. 
The boy sighs and exhausted sleeps. The father waits a time and then, weeping, cries out in the dark in anxious anguish, God, are you looking at me? If you are, maybe I can make it. Without you, I know I can't. Our Heavenly Father is looking at us. He loves us. and He wants us to choose the path that leads us to happiness here and eternal life hereafter. In His plan, He authorizes us to act for Him, to be instruments of His concern for His children. But He won't force any of us to make choices that lead to happiness. He has given each of us the right and responsibility to make personal choices, individual decisions, and has made us accountable for them. He not only affects our lives, He is affected by our lives, and sometimes He weeps for us. The same prophet Lehi to whom we referred taught his children these truths. Because they are redeemed, they have become free forever, knowing good from evil, to act for themselves and not to be acted upon. Wherefore, they are free to choose liberty and eternal life or to choose captivity and death. Switch channels with me to a scene on a Saturday night in a ranch home kitchen where a boy who's just answered the telephone nervously approaches his mother with a question. Mom, he says, Bob is on the phone. He and his dad and Tom and his dad are going snowmobiling and shooting tomorrow morning. and They want to know if I can go with them. The mother seems startled at the question and uncertain as she answers. Later, she explains that she was strongly tempted to respond sharply to her boy, reminding him that he had duties on Sunday morning, that in their family they went to church together, that when Dad returned later that night, he would not consider such a thing. But instead, she says to her son, Richard, you're 12 years old. You hold the priesthood. You're president of the deacon's quorum. I'm sure Dad would want you to make up your own mind and answer Bob yourself. The boy goes back to the telephone. The mother goes to her room and prays that her son will give the right answer. Nothing more is said about the matter. And on Sunday morning, the lad and his parents go into town to church, park in the lot across the street, and are crossing arm in arm when a pickup truck goes by. Two men and two boys are in the seat, snowmobiles in the trunk bed, guns slung in the rear window. The boys wave to Richard as they pass. He pauses a moment and says, Gee, I wish. The mother catches her breath a bit, and then Richard finishes. Gee, I wish I'd been able to talk Bob and Tom into coming to priesthood meeting this morning. The mother, telling the story, thanks the Lord for this choice lad and his personal decision to do the right thing. And then she weeps freely as she explains how very important that was to all of them. See, their son was killed in a farm accident that week. We push the remote control, and a classic statement from a great mind and heart stands out boldly. Ah, my soul, look to the road you are walking on. He who picks up one end of a stick picks up the other. He who chooses the beginning of a road chooses the place it leads to. I'd like to share with you young men tonight one very unhappy recording in my mind of a promising young man aboard ship in wartime who chose the beginning of a road that led him to a destination that was one of the last places in the world he really wanted to be. His initial mistakes were understandable. He was young and away from home and friends and familiar standards, and he wanted to be independent. His intentions were not evil, but because he was a little arrogant and proud, he rejected good counsel and let himself be led away by individuals who were described 
perfectly in the Book of Mormon thousands of years ago in their sinful persuasion of others. It is written of them that they do it for a token of bravery. Imitation men being imitated, these macho visions of life so pitifully empty, can lead only to tragedy. There is good and there is evil, and there is a way to help us all tell the difference. All things are which are good cometh of God, and that which is evil cometh of the devil. My brethren, it is given you unto you to judge that you may know good from evil, and the way to judge is as plain that ye may know with a perfect knowledge as the daylight is from the dark night. For behold, the Spirit of Christ is given to every man that he may know good from evil. A new picture comes on the screen and rivets our attention. A strong-looking young football player is responding to questions from sports writers about his development from a disappointing earlier career to one of great promise. What had brought about the change? You know, he said, in high school you can sort of make up your own world and be king of it. In the real world, you're with everybody else, and you're just part of it. He seems to be wisely using his agency now to follow a more constructive path. He had been on a road that seemed to be leading where he really didn't want to be, and he had been mature enough to turn around and choose a better way. Oh, we've seen remarkable events as we flipped the remote control of observation and memory. One of the most touching involved a young lady convert to the Church who had found in a Latter-day Saint fellow student and in her fellow student's home where she was invited for family home evening, a spirit and a caring relationship she had never known in her own life. She said that since her baptisms, things hadn't really materially changed in her own home. There was still abuse and argument and alcohol and foul language. But she said, there is one room at my house where I can go and shut the door and read the scriptures and listen to good music and pray and feel the Spirit of the Lord. In my little room, I can have that blessing. And one day, if the Lord will help me, I'll marry a man with whom I can live in a home where we can have the Spirit of the Lord always. There is one last scene I'd call up for you from my journal. The sobering realities of our present Middle East involvement, where many of our people are in threatening conditions, make this memory particularly pertinent and particularly appreciated. I read it as I wrote it in Nha Trang, Vietnam, in May 1967. There was a memorable meeting this morning which began with a senior military chaplain of another church addressing us warmly as my brothers in Christ. This touched me deeply, and the meeting that went along was consistent with his general, gentle beginning. It's a very special, tender meeting. The spirit was strong. It was uncomfortably warm in the room where we met. There were two ancient air conditioners, but they were ineffective. In fact, we discovered when we finally opened the door that it was cooler outside than in. Notwithstanding this, a great spirit was felt and a sweet experience enjoyed. Outside the room after the meeting, I walked quietly down the passageway alongside the large room where we had met. As I passed the back door, I looked in and saw a kind of human barrier that had been set up to separate the many young men lingering in the front part of the room from a few who were in the back. Three men had their hands on the head of another who sat on a chair. All four were dressed in battle gear. Two had returned from airstrikes to the north just in time for the meeting, and one was shortly to go. 
the three members of the district presidency were giving a blessing to an officer senior to them all, setting him apart as a district missionary. For some reason, this sweet scene affected me more deeply than any priesthood sermon I've heard. Priesthood to them meant the right and the power to serve, to act in the name of the Lord as his agents and is in his interest with their fellow man. This scene I hope I'll never forget. The scriptures teaches us, My sons, be not now negligent, for the Lord hath chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, and that you should minister unto him, that you may faithfully, I pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My remarks are directed primarily to you young men of the Uranic Priesthood. The subject is the moral cleanliness of our youth. The leaders of the Church care so deeply about every one of you that I feel an urgent need to warn you once again of the consequences of moral misconduct. At the same time, I want to impress upon you the great promises extended to those who remain morally clean. We are aware that the youth of the Church are growing up in a world that is plagued with teenage moral misconduct. We also know that sexual sin has increased tremendously during the past 20 years. Far too many of the youth, particularly American youth, have violated the law of chastity before they reach the age of 19. Unfortunately, the youth of the Church are not immune. For this reason, I want to assure you, young men, that your leaders know of the challenges you face in today's society. However, we have confidence that you can develop the strength and integrity to surmount these challenges and live for the blessings that are promised to those who remain morally clean. I emphasize that you do not need to be caught in the trap of being immoral, not one of you, ever. Each one of you must look into the future to understand the consequences of your actions, both good and bad. The cartoon character Ziggy said it this way, Our future is shaped by our past, so be very careful what you do in your past. Let me relate a personal experience to show the importance of keeping your future continually in mind. When I was in the Aaronic Priesthood, I and one of my friends attended General Priesthood meeting in this tabernacle and found ourselves over here by the stairs where we didn't belong. President George Albert Smith, in his kindly way, saw our plight and invited us to sit on the stairs. As we sat there and watched the proceedings of the meeting, I did not believe that I ever again would get that close to this pulpit. I remember saying to my friend as we left the tabernacle, it would sure be nice to be a general authority. Then you would have one of those seats on the stand to sit in. I know now by personal experience that in some ways, brethren, the benches you are sitting on are much more comfortable than these on the stand. 
Now the point. As an Aaronic priesthood holder, I had no idea that the time would come in my life when I would serve as a bishop, a mission president, a seventy, and now as an apostle. We cannot foresee what the Lord has in mind for us. Our only course of action is to be prepared and worthy for whatever He requires. We must govern our actions every day with our future in mind. One of Satan's clever tactics is to tempt us to concentrate on the present and ignore the future. The Lord warned Joseph Smith that Satan seeketh to turn their hearts away from the truth, that they become blinded and understand not the things which are prepared for them. The things which are prepared for them are the promised rewards of eternal life, which come as a result of obedience. The devil attempts to blind us to these rewards. President Heber J. Grant said that, quote, If we are faithful in keeping the commandments of God, His promises will be fulfilled to the very letter. The trouble is, the adversary of men's souls blinds their minds. He throws dust, so to speak, in their eyes, and they are blinded with the things of this world. Close quote. He tempts us with the transitory pleasures of the world so that we will not focus our minds and efforts on the things that bring eternal joy. The devil is a dirty fighter, and we must be aware of his tactics. Recently, I talked with several groups of young men and women in Utah and Idaho. They told me that some of our youth feel that they can be immoral during their teen years and then repent when they decide to go on a mission or be married in the temple. Some young men talk about a mission as a time when they will be forgiven from their past sins. They have the notion that a few transgressions now are no big deal because they can repent quickly, go on a mission, and then live happily ever after. Young men, please believe me when I tell you that this scenario is a gross deception by Satan. It is a fairy tale. Sin will always, always result in suffering. It may come sooner or it may come later, but it will come. The scripture states that you will stand with shame and awful guilt before the bar of God and that you will experience a lively sense of guilt and pain and anguish. A related misconception is that repentance is easy. President Kimball said that, quote, One has not begun to repent until he has suffered intensely for his sins. If a person hasn't suffered, he hasn't repented. Close quote. You need only talk to a person who has truly repented of serious sin to understand that the momentary pleasure of an immoral act is simply not worth the pain that always follows. The youth told me that some are tempted to be immoral because they want to be accepted by their peers. For the young men, it may mean acceptance based on some sort of macho image. For the young women, it may be the need to feel they are accepted by having a boyfriend. Acceptance by your peers must not come at the expense of your virtue and self-esteem. 
King Benjamin indicates that those guilty of sin will shrink from the presence of the Lord. In a very real way, those who have been immoral shrink from the presence of others, their friends, their parents, other members of their family, and church leaders. Now let us consider the grand blessings the Lord has promised those who are obedient to the commandment to be morally clean. You never need to repent of a sin you have not committed. That seems obvious, but I want to emphasize it. Repentance is a great blessing, but you should never make yourself sick just so you can try out the remedy. You are infinitely better to maintain your spiritual health by staying morally clean. If you feel confident in the presence of your parents, peers, and priesthood leaders, you can sense how you will feel when you have the confidence and acceptance of the Savior. Can you think of any better promise for the future than spoken by King Benjamin? I would desire that ye should consider on the blessed and happy state of those that keep the commandments of God. For behold, they are blessed in all things, both temporal and spiritual. And if they hold out faithful to the end, they are received into heaven, that thereby they may dwell with God in a state of never-ending happiness. The youth told me that a clean conscience improves their self-esteem. Their relationships with others are better, and they enjoy a very positive acceptance. In fact, some of them said they have lots more fun because of their high standards. They never have to worry about the dreaded diseases that often follow those who transgress the law of chastity. Here are some suggestions that will help you stay morally clean. First, understand the standards of moral cleanliness. The Lord said concerning His commandments, I give unto you directions how you may act before me, that it may turn to you for your salvation. In other words, commandments or guidance for happy living. Our youth seem confused about the definition of moral cleanliness. Some young men and women take a certain definition and then push it to its limits to see how far they can go without being immoral by that definition. I suggest an opposite approach. Several years ago, Elder Hartman Rector, who spent 26 years as a Navy pilot, gave an interesting analogy. The Navy had a rule that said, in effect, Thou shalt not fly thy airplane in the trees. <laughs> but to, That makes sense. But to ensure that he obeyed this rule, he set his own standard. Thou shalt not fly their airplane closer than 5,000 feet to the trees. He said, when you do this, you make the Navy's commandment of not flying in the trees easy to live. Some standards must not be compromised. If you are not sure about the Church's standard of morality, talk to your parents or to your priesthood leaders. Also, you can know the correct standards of moral conduct by following the promptings of the Spirit. These promptings never will lead you to do anything that makes you feel uncomfortable, unclean, or ashamed. You must be sensitive to these promptings because your physical passions can obscure them if you are not careful. Second, 
Once you understand the standards, you must determine that you will live by them. This kind of commitment is a fundamental gospel principle. The scriptures teach that there is nothing that the Lord thy God shall take in his heart to do but what he will do it. You must be the same way. You must be as Joseph who fled from the presence of Potiphar's wife rather than sin against God. You must avoid moral misconduct by making a firm decision to avoid compromising situations and to stand firm for what is right. You must have self-control and high goals. I urge every one of you tonight to set a goal to be morally clean if you have not already done so. Third, while you must exercise your agency and bear the responsibility for your decisions, you need not face temptation alone. Just two weeks ago at a state conference, Elder Charles Tiny Grant, one of our fine regional representatives, shared an experience with us. He said that some years ago, while he was the football coach at Ricks, he met a man named Hal Barton, who was famous for his love of fishing. He was warned, however, that although Hal knows where to find the big fish, he often goes into strong waters to find them. Their first opportunity to go fishing together was in February as the ice was breaking up. As they walked together up the river, Hal pointed to an island about 50 yards away and said, Coach, that's where we will find the big ones. The day was cold, and now they had to cross a dangerous part of the river. The coach soon discovered that the rocks were round and slick, and the water was only inches from the top of his waders. Since he's six feet five inches tall, that meant it was deep. He was about to tell Hal that he was afraid he couldn't cross the water, but realized that the football coach could not admit that he was afraid. Just then Hal said, Coach, this is how we're going to cross the water. You take a step and get a firm footing while I hold your hand and arm steady. Then I will take a step while you stand firmly and furnish the support. We will work our way through this rolling swift water over these slippery rocks. With this mutual support, they crossed the river safely and caught the big ones. This is an excellent analogy for the way you can live the Lord's standard of morality. Some have gone before you, have a firm footing, having lived the moral standard and experienced the blessings of doing so. As you take steps into the deep water of life, they will support you. And as you gain a firm footing in righteousness, you can help others who come after you. Generally, your most important source of support is your parents. Their teaching should be a powerful influence in your decision to be clean. I realize, however, that morality can be a sensitive subject. I urge you, young men, to initiate conversations with your parents about their moral values. Ask them to help you define the standards that will keep you morally clean. Also seek counsel from your priesthood leaders, especially your bishop. He knows the standards and he knows what to teach you. Seek opportunities to be with him. You can expect him to ask pointed, searching questions. Trust him. Confide in him. Ask him to help you understand what the Lord expects from you. 
make a commitment to live according to the Church's standards of morality. A meaningful relationship with an adult leader is vital to help you keep morally clean and worthy. Your ironic priesthood advisors will teach you and give you the support and direction you may need. Ask them for guidance. They will know how to help you. Fourth, choose friends who share your standards, both members and non-members. Such friends will make peer pressure uplifting and positive. The young men and women I talked to said that acceptance of the peer group is a powerful influence, either for good or bad. When your friends observe high moral standards, you are more likely to do the same. When you have established a strong bond with such friends, you can reach out to those who have not made firm decisions about morality. Help them to know that immorality is not cool. Fifth, you young men must cultivate a considerate attitude toward women of all ages. The young women ask me to tell you that they want you to respect them and show them common, sincere courtesy. Do not hesitate to show your good manners by opening a door for them, taking the initiative in inviting on a date, and standing as they enter a room. Believe it or not, in this age of equal rights, the young women want you to extend these simple courtesies. Finally, help from the, seek help from the Lord, the source of spiritual power. If you call on His holy name and watch and pray continually, you will not be tempted above that which He can bear. Your daily prayers must include a heartfelt request for help in keeping your commitment to remain morally clean. When you do this, the Lord will bless you with the strength to remain morally clean. Remember, young men, that purity precedes power. The Lord said, But purify your hearts before me, and then go ye into all the world and preach my gospel unto every creature who has not received it. Missionaries discover this very early in their missions and make every effort to be worthy so they can serve with power. Now, just a word to those of you who have violated the moral law. I hold out the hope of repentance to you. The Savior's Atonement provides forgiveness when you have repented completely. You will necessarily suffer because of sin, but you can know the joy of being forgiven completely. Your bishop can guide you through the process of repentance, so talk to him as soon as possible. You must also seek divine forgiveness through your personal prayers. Alma said, Never until I did cry out unto the Lord Jesus Christ for mercy did I receive a remission of my sins. But behold, I did cry unto him, and I did find peace unto my soul. Once you have forsaken your sins, never return to them, because unto that soul who sinneth shall the former sins return. Tonight I echo the prayer offered by President Hugh B. Brown in a setting such as this more than 20 years ago, when the moral misconduct of youth was not as commonplace as it is today. He prayed, O oh, Father, help these young men who are listening tonight, when they get home, to get on their knees 
and commit themselves to thee, and that then they may know, and I promise them that they may know, that with thy help they need not fear for the future. Brethren, we need not fear the future if we will keep the Lord's commandments and live to be his worthy servants. You can stay morally clean and prepare now for a happy future. May the Lord bless every one of you to so live. I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My beloved brothers and sisters and friends, I ask for your faith and prayers this afternoon as I feel moved upon to discuss a subject which I have chosen to call the greatest challenge in the world. It has to do with the privilege and responsibility of being good parents. On this subject, there are about as many opinions as there are parents, yet there are few who claim to have all of the answers. I am certainly not one of them. I feel that there are more outstanding young men and women among our people at present than at any other moment in my lifetime. This presupposes that most of these fine young people have come from good homes and have committed caring parents. Even so, the most conscientious parents feel that they may have made some mistakes. One time when I did a thoughtless thing, I remember my own mother exclaiming, Where did I fail? <laughs> the Lord has directed, Bring up your children in light and truth. To me, there is no more important human effort. Being a father or a mother is not only a great challenge, it is a divine calling. It is an effort requiring consecration. President David O. McKay stated that being parents is the greatest trust that has been given to human beings. While human challenges are greater than that of being good parents, few opportunities offer greater potential for joy. Surely no more important work is to be done in this world than preparing our children to be God-fearing, happy, honorable, and productive. Parents will find no more fulfilling happiness than to have their children honor them and their teachings. It is the glory of parenthood. John testified, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. In my opinion, the teaching, rearing, and training of children requires more intelligence, intuitive understanding, humility, strength, wisdom, spirituality, perseverance, and hard work than any other challenge we might have in life. This is especially so when moral foundations of honor and decency are eroding around us. To have successful homes, values must be taught, and there must be rules, there must be standards, and there must be absolutes. Many societies give parents very little support in teaching and honoring moral values. A number of cultures are becoming essentially valueless, and many of the younger people in those societies are becoming moral cynics. As societies as a whole have decayed and lost their moral identity, and so many homes are broken, 
the best hope is to turn greater attention and effort to the teaching of the next generation, our children. In order to do this, we must first reinforce the primary teachers of children. Chief among these are the parents and the other family members, and the best environment should be in the home. Somehow, some way, we must try harder to make our homes stronger so that they will stand as sanctuaries against the unwholesome, pervasive, moral, dry rot around us. Harmony, happiness, peace, and love in the home can help give children the required inner strength to cope with life's challenges. Barbara Bush, wife of President George Bush, a few months ago said to the graduates of Wellesley College, But whatever the era, whatever the times, one thing will never change. Fathers and mothers, if you have children, they must come first. You must read to your children, you must hug your children, and you must love your children. Your success as a family, our success as a society, depends not on what happens in the White House, but what happens inside your house. End of quote. To be a good father and mother requires that the parents defer many of their own needs and desires in favor of the needs of their children. As a consequence of this sacrifice, conscientious parents develop a nobility of character and learn to put into practice the selfless truths taught by the Savior himself. I have the greatest respect for single parents who struggle and sacrifice, trying against almost super human odds to hold the family together. They should be honored and helped in their heroic efforts. But any mother's or father's task is much easier where there are two functioning parents in the home. Children often challenge and tax the strength and wisdom of both parents. A few years ago, Bishop Stanley Smoot was interviewed by President Spencer W. Kimball, who asked, How often do you have family prayer? Bishop Smoot answered, We try to have family prayer twice a day, but we average about once. President Kimball answered, In the past, having family prayer once a day may have been all right, but in the future it will not be enough if we are going to save our families. End of quote. I wonder if having casual and infrequent family home evening will be enough in the future to fortify our children with sufficient moral strength. In the future, infrequent family scripture study may be inadequate to arm our children with the virtue necessary to withstand the moral decay of the environment in which they will live. Where in the world will the children learn chastity, integrity, honesty, and basic human decency if not at home? These values will, of course, be reinforced at Church, but parental teaching is more constant. When parents try to teach their children to avoid danger, it is no answer for the parents to say to the children, We are experienced and wise in the ways of the world, and we can get closer to the edge of the cliff than you. Parental hypocrisy can make children cynical and unbelieving of what they are taught in the home. For instance, when parents attend movies, they forbid their children to see parental credibility is diminished. If children are expected to be honest, parents must be honest. If children are expected to be virtuous, parents must be virtuous. 
If you expect your children to be honorable, you must be honorable. Among the other values children should be taught are respect for others, beginning with the child's own parents and family, respect for the symbols of faith and patriotic beliefs of others, respect for law and order, respect for the property of others, respect for authority. Timothy reminds us that children should learn first to show piety at home. One of the most difficult parental challenges is to appropriately discipline children. Child-rearing is so individualistic. Every child is different and unique. What works with one may not work with another. I do not know who is wise enough to say what discipline is too harsh or what is too lenient except the parents of the children themselves who love them most. It is a matter of prayerful discernment for the parents. Certainly the overarching and undergirding principle is that discipline of children must be motivated more by love than by punishment. Brigham Young counseled, If you are ever called upon to chasten a person, never chasten beyond the balm you have within you to bind up. End of quote. Direction and discipline are, however, certainly an indispensable part of child-rearing. If parents do not discipline their children, then the public will discipline them in a way the parents do not like. Without discipline, children will not respect either the rules of the home or of society. A principal purpose for discipline is to teach obedience. President David O. McKay stated, Parents who fail to teach obedience to their children, if their homes do not develop obedience, society will demand it and get it. It is therefore better for a home with its kindliness, sympathy, and understanding to train a child in obedience rather than callously leave him to the brutal and unsympathetic discipline that society will impose if the home has not already fulfilled its obligation." End of quote. An essential part of teaching children to be disciplined and responsible is to have them learn to work. As we grow up, many of us are like the man who said, I like work. It fascinates me. I can sit and look at it for hours. <laughs> Again, the best teachers of the principle of work are the parents themselves. For me, work became a joy. When I first worked alongside my father, grandfather, uncles, and brothers, I'm sure that I was often more than of an aggravation than a help, but the memories are sweet and the lessons learned are valuable. Children need to learn responsibility and independence. Are the parents personally taking the time to show and demonstrate and explain so that children can, as Lehi taught, act for themselves and not be acted upon. Luther Burbank, one of the world's greatest horticulturists, said, If we paid no more attention to our plants than we have to our children, we would now be living in a jungle of weeds. Children are also beneficiaries of moral agency by which we are all afforded the opportunity to progress, grow, and develop. That agency also permits children to pursue the alternate choice of selfishness, wastefulness, self-indulgence, and self-destruction. Children often express this agency when very young. Let parents who have been conscientious, loving, and concerned, 
and who have lived the principles of righteousness as best they could be comforted in knowing that they are good parents despite the actions of some of their children. The children themselves have a responsibility to listen, obey, and having been taught to learn. Parents cannot always answer for all their children's misconduct because they cannot ensure the children's good behavior. Some few children could tax even Solomon's wisdom and Job's patience. There is often a special challenge for those parents who are affluent or overly indulgent. In a sense, some children in those circumstances hold their parents hostage by withholding their support for parental rules unless the parents acquiesce in the children's demands. Elder Nina Maxwell has said, Those who do too much for their children will soon find that they can do nothing with their children. So many children have been so much done for that they are almost done in. Close quote. It seems to be human nature that we do not fully appreciate material things we have not ourselves earned. There is a certain irony in the fact that some parents are so anxious for their children to be accepted by and be popular with their peers, yet these same parents fear that their children may be doing the things their peers are doing. Generally, those children who make the decision and have the resolve to abstain from drugs, alcohol, and illicit sex are those who have adopted and internalized the strong values of their homes as lived by their parents. In times of difficult decisions, they are most likely to follow the teachings of their parents rather than the example of their peers or the sophistries of the media which glamorize alcohol, consumption, illicit sex, infidelity, dishonesty, and other vices. They are like Helaman's 2,000 young men who have been taught by their mothers that if they did not doubt, God would deliver them from death. And they rehearse the words of their mothers, saying, We do not doubt that our mothers knew it. What seems to cement Parental teachings and values in place in children's lives is a firm belief in deity. When this belief becomes part of their very souls, they have inner strength. So, of all it is important to be taught, what should parents teach? The scriptures tell us that parents are to teach their children faith in Christ, the Son of the living God, and of baptism and the gift of the Holy Ghost, and the doctrine of repentance. These truths must be taught in the home. They cannot be taught in the public schools, nor will they be fostered by the government or by society. Of course, church programs can help, but the most effective teaching takes place in the home. Parental teaching moments need not be big or dramatic or powerful. We learn this from the master teacher. Charles Henry Parkhurst said, The completed beauty of Christ's life is only the added beauty of little inconspicuous acts of beauty, talking with the woman at the well, the stealthy ambition laid away in the heart of the young ruler that kept him out of the kingdom of heaven, teaching a little knot of followers how to pray, kindling a fire and broiling fish that his disciples might have breakfast waiting for them when they came ashore from a night of fishing, cold, tired, and discouraged. All of these things you see led us so easily into the real quality and tone of 
Christ's interests, so specific, so narrowed down, so enlisted in what is small, so engrossed in what is minute, end of quote. And so it is with being parents. The little things are the big things, sewn into the family tapestry by a thousand threads of love, faith, discipline, sacrifice, patience, and work. There are some great spiritual promises which may help faithful parents in this Church. Children of eternal ceilings may have visited upon them the divine promises made to their valiant forebears who have nobly kept their covenants. Covenants remembered by parents will be remembered by God. The children may thus become the beneficiaries and inheritors of these great covenants and promises. This is because they are the children of the covenant. God bless the struggling sacrifice, sacrificing honorable parents of this world. May he especially honor the covenants kept by faithful parents among our people and watch over these children of the covenant. I pray that this may be so in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.